one of the things I'm most excited about is an entirely different paradigm for treating behavioral health, uh, psychedelic medicine. So thinking about things like ketamine-assisted psychotherapy for treatment-resistant depression, thinking about things like MDMA for PTSD, thinking about psilocybin, early clinical trial results for many of these different compounds are really positive, really strong, both for the basic sort of common disease like depression, anxiety, but also for things that are quite a bit more challenging to treat, substance use, eating disorders, OCD. I think we're on the cusp of both cultural acceptance, but also a whole trove of data being released about the effectiveness of these drugs and these types of therapies. I'm Joe Lonsdale. Welcome to the American Optimist. Sebastian, awesome to have you here today. Good to see you, Joe. Sebastian is a new partner at HVC. He has a bachelor's and master's degree in molecular biophysics and biochemistry. And then after that, started medical school at Stanford and decided to leave after a year. Tell us about why you decided to leave Stanford. I grew up in the Boston area where there's sort of like a lot of biotech. And I think when you grow up in that environment, sort of my mental model about how you do anything in healthcare is you, you know, go to undergrad, you get your bachelor's, you go to some kind of a graduate school, you get an MD, you get a PhD, you become a professor someplace, you publish great papers. And then like one day, uh, Third Rock gives you a call and says, hey, it's time to start a company. And you're off to the races. This was the mental model I had about how you did things in healthcare and the life sciences growing up. And I think that, you know, going to school, a place like Yale, I think just underscores that, um, you know, the tracks made available to you are really uh, in, in the sciences and life sciences and healthcare really emphasize advanced degrees. So, you know, this was the path I took. You just assume your whole life you're going to get a bachelor's, master's, MD, something else, eventually be a professor, eventually maybe go to business. You're right. I, I knew no other way to make impact in the world, particularly focusing on healthcare and life sciences. And so, you know, I dutifully went to medical school after graduating undergrad. Thankfully, I went to medical school at Stanford. And uh, thankfully, a number of my close friends were Teal Fellows who had dropped out of school and were right down University Ave in Palo Alto. They dropped Alto. out of undergrad, probably. Yeah, they dropped out of undergrad and right down the road in Palo Alto building companies. And so by day, I was, you know, memorizing the bones in your wrist. And then on weekends, I was... Uh, how, by day how, many, and, how, how many bones are there in your wrist? You know, Joe, I don't, I don't remember anymore. I uh, can't say I've retained that important content. Um, There's a lot to memorize in medical school. It seems really boring to me. Yeah, I think that really a lot of it isn't terribly relevant to uh, the clinical practice of medicine. Um, sometimes it felt more like a hazing ritual uh, than anything really important um, related to training you to be a doctor. And so I think I detected that even in my first year. There were elements of it that I really loved, going down to San Jose and uh, you know participating in the free clinic there and working with underserved populations. But there were parts of it that I thought were, were kind of BS. So talking to some of my friends who were starting companies, building businesses, I saw sort of like a different possible narrative where you had smart young people with a problem they cared a lot about, not asking for permission, but building companies, solving problems without necessarily getting a credential, without necessarily going through the traditional path. And this got me excited about what I might be able to do. And so being dissatisfied with med school, um, but on the other hand, being really excited about what my friends were doing, I ended up finding my way to Palantir, uh, where I joined in um, right at the end of 2013 to help build out their commercial healthcare business. So you joined Palantir right out of, after a year in med school and you started learning more about healthcare there. What did you, you learn at Palantir? 
Well, I think that there's actually, you know, uh, there's a lot of specific things to how healthcare businesses work and how the industry works. But I think that the biggest learning from Palantir is, is this sort of like broader sort of observation on how businesses can be the best tools to solving certain problems in the world. I think that, again, coming out of a place like Yale, you have certain mental models about, you know, problems that policy can solve, uh, problems that nonprofits can solve. And what I saw at Palantir was a scaled business actually doing a lot of really important work. And I think that that's not necessarily the mental model that a lot of students at top schools have. Students at top schools assume you're going to solve the problem by doing science or doing policy or but, but they don't assume you actually go into a business and fix things. They in the assume world. you go to a, to a business to make money. But in fact, like making money and having impact at scale are one and the same. Think about the pandemic we just experienced. Amazon was far more helpful to many Americans than anything the government did. And I think that, I think that that's something that, um, a lot of college students don't, don't necessarily see. That makes sense. So healthcare seems to be a particularly broken part of the economy. Um, your costs go up every year. Doctors are burnt out. Patients aren't often having a good experience. Why is this happening? What's going on? Yeah, all that is true. And I think that one of the reasons why this is so difficult to solve is that you can't really, you know, say it's just you know, corporate greed or just monopolies or just regulatory issues. It's so many, it's death by a thousand cuts in healthcare is my view. But if you had to distill it down, if you had to really sort of like uh, put it into into sort of one solvable problem, I think uh, we can frame it as a productivity problem. I think that in healthcare, as it has become a bigger and bigger part of our economy, um, multi-factor productivity has actually been declining. Multi-factor so, productivity just means that just how productive and efficient the system is overall. Yeah, exactly. Uh, how much output are we getting for the same labor input? For the same number of nurses and doctors and, and hospital buildings and everything else. It's, it's, it's the, it's, and why is it going down? Why is productivity going down? It's a really good question. I don't know if I can, I, I think there's PhD theses to be written about this. And I I think the archaeology exercise isn't necessarily as interesting as thinking about how we actually solve this problem. And so the fact is, you know, as we have been spending more in healthcare, we have been getting less for each incremental labor input. And I think, you know, when I think about solving problems in healthcare, I think about, hey, how can we reverse that trend? It seems like there's at least a few major highlights. I guess there's there's no exact answer, but like there's local monopolies is a problem. There's the fact that the incentives of the of the hospitals and the doctors isn't always aligned with whatever's the most efficient. And you know, there, there's all sorts of players who have incentives wrong. There's all sorts of players who capture regulators. That, that's right. That's right. So there's a bunch of specific sort of policy issues that I think we can get into. I think that maybe one framework we can use to think about it is there's uh, policy levers. And then there's a role for industry and entrepreneurs to play as well. Um, so, so entrepreneurs can solve some of the problem, and you need policy to solve some of the problem as well. Policy kind of sets the um, the sort of like rules of the game. It sets mm-hmm. the boundaries uh, 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 within which entrepreneurs can sort of operate. And it build. seems it seems to me like the boundaries that have been set in some cases accidentally made it harder to compete and fix the problems, right? So if you, so if you set the boundaries too narrowly to have the rules too prescribed, you kind of lock in some inefficient things. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think that this is definitely part of what we've been experiencing in healthcare, where um, you know the way that we pay for healthcare in this country predominantly is what's called fee-for-service reimbursement. And the government defined a set of codes that describe services that you can deliver. And doctors, most doctors today, simply get paid for the services they deliver. How many sorts of codes are there overall? Like tens of thousands. Of tens of thousands. Codes. So more, more than there are bones in the wrist. More than, <laughs> <laughs> well, 
<laughs> you know, I, I can't say my memory is perfect, but I don't think there's more than 10,000 bones in there. But there's a lot of these codes. And ultimately, as a physician, uh, I don't think that these are like bad or malicious people for the most part. But you're ultimately rewarded for doing stuff. Does doing anyone the know the tens stuff. of thousands of codes? No one does, right? They just know there's some codes in their area and then they look them up for things. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, maybe someone does. I don't know. That person is probably too much time and, in their hands. And, the, and are more codes getting created all the time for new treatments that come up? Or, how, or do you have to create a new code? I, I remember we were doing AI diagnostic. We had to create a new code, I think, for an AI diagnostic for, for something. That's right. That's right. One of our companies, Digital Diagnostics, um, has the first FDA-approved autonomous AI for um, conducting di- diabetic retinopathy screening. Huge problem. If you have di- diabetes, you might go blind. You can check it so you don't go blind. And you can use AI to do it more efficiently. Mm-hmm. And they had actually had to lobby for code, right? You got it. There was no code for AI to perform a diabetic retinopathy screen. And so even though we had the technology, for years we couldn't get paid for it. It was silly. Um, and this silly. is something we could have deployed across the country by now. And, and you know, instead we got stuck in a regulatory morass. And so these codes, I think... You know, this, this isn't the be-all and end-all problems in healthcare, but I think they do create certain issues. The diabetic retinopathy screening example is one of them. I also think um, the broader point to make here is uh, these codes reward doctors for doing stuff. Yeah, so it's, not, fee, so it's fee for service versus for treating a patient holistically. That's right. They don't reward health outcomes. They don't reward value necessarily. So I, so I could look at a patient and what they're going to need over the next year. And if I'm really good, I could say, okay, here's the things we should do to this patient so we don't need to treat them a year from now. And, and, and that would actually probably, I'd get paid less, but we'd have better outcomes. You got it. And so we got, so part of what we're doing now with value-based care is changing it to look at a certain patient population over some amount of time. Is it usually over a year or two? How, how's the most of value-based care working now? Well, there's all different models with value-based care. I think that thematically, when we talk about value-based care, we're talking about, hey, Let's let's let, let's set these codes aside. Let's set this sort of model of reimbursement aside, and let's pay physicians, hospitals, health systems fundamentally for improving someone's health. And there's a lot of ways in which you could define patient populations and become expert on treating people's health for certain conditions, for certain status. So you can have people with a certain type of autism of a certain age. Maybe there's certain experts to treat them. I, you know, I think there's a company you're, you're involved in that does something like yeah. that. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So. Um, you know, zooming out, uh, I think that by focusing on specific patient populations, specific demographics, specific episodes of care, I think that's where a lot of the great possibilities are to build businesses. So one, 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 of my, one of my favorite ones that were involved in there that you did is based on people who are very, very poor on Medicaid. So there's a lot of people who are homeless, who are chronic disease, who are, you know, a lot of them are unfortunately on drugs or mental illness. Uh, and, and, and I guess there's a way to deal with that population in a way that holistically that saves money overall for the system and helps them more. Can you, you talk about that? Yeah, you're talking about City Block Health, which is an amazing company in our portfolio that, that we're really proud to support. They focus on the Medicare, Medicaid, dual eligible population. Older, poor, lots of complex disease, social issues that contribute to health outcomes. CityBlock is a primary care company that serves this population explicitly. And this population is a large percentage of the health cost, right? It's only maybe 5% of the population or less, but it, but, they, but these average person, it's like eight or nine times more cost, right? 20, 25, 30 plus thousand dollars a year in medical spend for this population. Mm-hmm. And CityBlock says, hey, 
um, let's just build the best care model for this population agnostic of what fee-for-service billing codes exist, um, let's build a care model for this population explicitly. And because um, of these value-based care models, these financial, these new financial models, um, City Block can get rewarded for keeping these patients out of the hospital, for keeping them out of the emergency room, out of inpatient That's really states. cool. Capitalism is basically applying here to, to innovate, to spend more money on poor people and save everyone money overall. So, so positive outcomes. Exactly. Uh, City Block, because of these new value-based care models, um, CityBlock can get rewarded for driving stronger health outcomes, not just doing stuff. That's amazing. Other than CityBlock, what's another example of this that's exciting? You know, recently we've been involved in building a new company called Hopscotch Health, which is uh, focused on a different population, but a really important and underserved population nonetheless. And that's seniors in rural America. Can we build a new primary care model geared towards this population that suffers, you know, really high rates of chronic disease, but has very poor access to primary care today. And I think we're seeing some great early results with them uh, as well. And the, and the way that works normally in rural healthcare, it's difficult to build primary care doctors to get them to go out there because and, and, there's not enough density. So, so what are we doing differently here? Yeah. You know, in, in fee-for-service world, you simply can't get paid much for delivering primary care to patients in rural America. And that's partly why they aren't out there. But in a value-based model where you get rewarded for keeping people out of the emergency room, out of the hospital. It's more worthwhile to go do it. Bingo. Venture investors like us can actually invest in this sort of these sort of, these sort of important priorities. So these, these value-based models are really cool. They essentially allow us to take the tools of capitalism and use them to solve problems in healthcare that we haven't been able to solve before. So, you know, we started the American Optimist to push back on the pessimism and division in our country. What areas of healthcare are you most optimistic about? And what are some of the exciting frontiers that we're tapping into right now? You know, there's a lot of talk about behavioral health in this country as of late. And I think, you know, rightly so. It's something that that is, is potentially been discussed, potentially been stigmatized in the past. And we're seeing a lot of venture investment in this area on the back of it. Folks who are providing talk therapy over telemedicine, um, all well and good. But one of the things I'm most excited about is an entirely different paradigm for treating behavioral health, uh, psychedelic medicine. So thinking about things like ketamine-assisted psychotherapy for treatment-resistant depression, thinking about things like MDMA for PTSD, thinking about psilocybin, early clinical trial results for many of these different compounds are really positive, really strong, both for the basic sort of common disease like depression, anxiety, but also for things that are quite a bit more challenging to treat, substance use, eating disorders, OCD. I think we're on the cusp of both cultural acceptance, but also a whole trove of data being released about the effectiveness of these drugs and these types of things. I saw a funny tweet from Joe Rogan today. This, the Border Patrol had caught a citizen, two citizens coming back home from Canada that had ecstasy and psilocybin and one of these other drugs, I believe, in their car. And the Border Patrol was showing off that they'd caught these legal people. And Joe Rogan tweeted out that they should probably try these themselves and might change their lives. <laughs> but it's, it is interesting. These things are still highly illegal right now in the U.S. and they have been for a long time. I think we, we still have a ways to go in terms of making these things sort of like culturally acceptable. And I think like, you know, it bothers me when I see the stigma attached to them, because if you spend a second looking at the clinical data, you realize this is these compounds have the promise to reduce human suffering on, on a massive scale. 
we invested in a company that's using ketamine, which is the one legal one of all of these to right. treat people with, and it's working very well for mental health issues. And I guess psilocybin MDMA could as well, but they're just not allowed to be used yet. Yeah, that's right. Um, so uh, one of our portfolio companies, Mindbloom, is offering ketamine-assisted psychotherapy over telemedicine today. And uh, you know, in the not too distant future, we'll be releasing, I think, the largest clinical trial uh, ever conducted using ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. Amazing. For so you're just keeping track of the data. By largest is this like hundreds of people or yeah uh, close to a thousand actually and um because it's really important that we do um you know track outcomes and safety data closely so that we can tell the story to the rest of america and, th- and this would fit into the value-based care as well it's going to save a lot of money for the health system if you can address mental health more you easily. got it you got it it's far cheaper to do a couple of ketamine sessions than be using talk therapy you know a couple times a week for years on end so you mentioned all these studies showing the results for mental health and for ptsd with these drugs i mean have you or your friends had personal experience with this Yeah, I mean, I think the reason why I got interested in this whole space as an investor is actually as a result of an experience I had a few years ago. I had a friend who was going through a really rough time, both at work and um, and personally. Uh, His wife was, you know, divorcing him, and um, he was likely going to lose custody of his kids. And it was really hard to see him go through that. And one day he gave me a call and said, "Hey." Um, will you supervise me receiving IV ketamine therapy? And I was like, what is, what is that? I don't even know what ketamine is. Um, well, it's a type of psychedelic therapy that can help people overcome some of these really difficult sort of moments in their life. Um, it's an FDA approved medication, mainly uses an anesthetic, but at lower doses, it's a very effective antidepressant. Um, will you come, you know, supervise one of my sessions? So I drove out with him actually to a clinic on the outskirts of San Francisco. And we sat together while my friend received an hour of IV, IV ketamine therapy, listening to music. And over the course of a couple sessions, I saw him come out with an ability to solve problems again, with an optimism in his eyes again. He started a new job. He uh, reached, I think, a more sustainable place with his children. And he's doing so much better. And I'm not sure that he would have landed there without having access to ketamine therapy. And luckily, he happened to run in the right circles and he knew where he could get it. Um, But I don't think most Americans realize this stuff even exists. And it's so powerful. It changes lives and it works and it's safe. I feel very sort of passionately about this, that we need to, it's, it's, it's our duty to get this out. I totally agree. I've had people very close to me who struggle with depression and mental health issues and these types of substances just completely change the framework of, I think it goes into your brain and gives you a new, new perspective or something. So it's really important. Where are we with like the PTSD mental health stuff? I, I hear this stuff also works really well for that. It's a major crisis for, for our military. Is this, is this going to start happening and being used by veterans? There's a great phase two trial uh, using MDMA for patients with PTSD. Um, that result was released, I think, a couple months ago uh, from a nonprofit called MAPS. And the results are really strong. It's one of the most promising therapeutic modalities out there for PTSD. And there are a lot of veterans out there suffering today. No, it's horrible. Uh, we, 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 for lack of good options. Obviously, with Palantir, we work with a lot of people who are amazing in the Special Forces community, and all of them have lost friends to PTSD. It seems crazy we haven't just fast-forwarded and adopted this. Are there other parts of the world that are adopting this faster yet? 
you know, outside of the rainforests of Mexico or Costa Rica or something, I'm not sure you're going to see a place with higher psychedelic adoption. I think the stigma is real. And I think um, I wish that a lot of the professional societies, the medical professional societies, as well as government agencies were more supportive. You know, it's great that we're seeing some green shoots of mainstream acceptance, but I think there's a lot we could be doing to accelerate Why is this. there such stigma? Is it because it was, there's always hippies that were using it as well? Like what's, what's, what's the stigma? Uh, I don't know. You'll have to ask the uh, the boomer generation and, and 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 what happened with Timothy Leary. I'm not I'm not entirely sure. We have to wait until the old people die sometimes before new things can be accepted. A little bit before my time. Understood. What other areas are you excited about? I think there's pace organizations. What's a pace organization? Yeah, really cool. So you know the way that Americans age today is kind of depressing. You get older, you qualify for Medicare, you spend down your assets, you qualify for Medicaid, then eventually you end up in a skilled nursing facility, assisted living facility, and ultimately hospice. PACE organizations are really cool. They say, hey, how about we let seniors live at home as they age and direct that government funny, uh, government money that would have gone to a skilled nursing facility or an assisted living facility, and let's give it to a really souped-up adult daycare and transportation instead. What, is, what does PACE stand for? Program of All-Inclusive Care for the Elderly. Yeah. So it's an all-inclusive care program for the elderly that actually takes the money we would have spent and spend it while they can stay in their houses. Yeah. It spend, it's, instead of spending it on skilled nursing facilities, assisted living facilities, it says, hey, take all that money and spend it on taking grandma and grandpa back and forth to a souped-up adult daycare. It's another center. version of value-based care, in a sense, for old people who want to stay in their homes is way more efficient. I, I know a lot of people who get older, they're, they're much more comfortable in their homes. They're probably healthier knowing their environment. I think that's right. And I think it's a problem that we're going to have to deal with sooner than later as you know, boomers age into their 70s and 80s. And millennials live who live far away from their parents, um, they're going to need more options. So I'm, I'm excited to invest more in this area and uh, see if we can offer a better experience for, for our seniors uh, who, who are aging. What are some other problems we should be looking to? I mean, there's this healthcare so big. What are the other problem areas you're focused on? You know, one of the things that, that does keep me up at night a little bit is that we just kind of stopped talking about the opioid epidemic in this country. You know, just because we stopped reporting on it doesn't mean that it went away. And in fact, if you look at the most recent data, we're still uh, seeing 30, 30 plus percent year-over-year growth in opioid overdose deaths. That's where we stopped talking about it as much. I agree. Yeah. I guess uh, the fentanyl from China is a big part of this problem now, right? That's right. There's a great book, Fentanyl Inc., by an author, Ben Westoff, that I encourage folks to read if, if you'd like to learn more about the topic. But there are state-owned enterprises in China that are shipping fentanyl and fentanyl precursors this is, to Mexico. This is, this is totally crazy, right? I, I have fr- friends in China and friends of friends, and they kind of joke about how they, they're getting revenge on the West for the opioid wars, which really they should be targeting the UK, not us. But but I guess, I guess we're the equivalent target these days i suppose so um you know kidding aside like this is a really serious problem and it but they do seem to be doing it on purpose like the state-owned enterprises like chinese government is doing this and sending it over right you know there's lots of things i'm not terribly happy with uh the chinese communist party about but i think that in in this case it's hard to tell if it's ignorance or malice what i do know is happening is you know Thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of doses of fentanyl are pouring over the U.S.-Mexico border, you know, week over week. We've got to do something about that. It has to re-enter the national conversation. So a lot's fixed with fentanyl. That's a big one we got to figure out. Uh, obesity is another one that's obviously still a big issue. I guess there's some promising new drugs there. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, obesity is an interesting one. So if you look at the population prevalence of obesity in American adults, it just starts going up monotonically in 1970-ish and really hasn't slowed down since. And, you know, I think that 
That's a huge problem. Obesity is a risk factor for COVID. Obesity shortens your life expectancy. Obesity burdens our healthcare system with downstream consequences, diabetes, heart disease, and so on. A lot of people seem to be normalizing obesity in the in our which is wrong. Culture, it's a disease. Wrong. Yeah. It's a disease. Yeah, maybe um, yeah, I agree. Now it well, one of the one of the funny things which I probably shouldn't say, but I will, is that we have consumer stuff we do sometimes. And uh, a lot of the consumer companies I see around are starting to put like very obese people as, as their models. And I, I asked our partners who know the consumer stuff to talk to just, you know, we only do, do a lot of these. We do a couple of companies and it turns out that when they use like the fit models, they get like 10 times better response for sales, mm. but they're using the obese models because there's some really ultra woke people who say you have to do that to normalize it, which seems like it's the opposite of what they should be doing. It's not even, it doesn't even work for the business. They're just doing it because they think they're supposed to. Yeah. I mean, I think this ties into um, like a little bit of how do we fix the problem? Because I'm not sure that obesity is a healthcare system problem to solve. I don't really, it's really hard to tease out what the root cause of this trend is. You know, we had ice cream, we had fast food in 1970, but like, why does this keep on getting worse year over year? I'm not entirely sure. I suspect there's some kind of a cultural disease here. There's some kind of cultural rot that's contributing to this. And I certainly don't think that it's the right thing to do to be promoting what is a very unhealthy sort of state of being. I think we ought to be be promoting healthy lifestyles, not unhealthy ones. So Sebastian, we've talked a lot about healthcare. Obviously, this is a big focus of yours and of ours right now, but you're also a journalist. Like, What else in the economy is interesting right now? What else should investors be looking at? Well, I think that in the wake of the pandemic, people are reassessing their supply chains. And I think we ought to take a look at manufacturing because there's a whole lot of ways that you can apply technology to improve productivity in this area. And when you're thinking about onshoring a lot of manufacturing activity, now is the time to be developing and deploying those technologies. And so we've started to dip our feet into those waters and understand manufacturing a little bit better. I think, yeah, I think it's a very interesting macro theme. I had a dinner recently with the investor, David Einhorn, and a lot of people are very skeptical. I think we've done too much in tech the last 10 years, where they, def- they define tech as the software and optimizing things and having all these smart people getting really good at building software as a service, whereas we actually need to be building things in the real world. And there's a shortage of things. And there's inflation right now. And we actually have to, you know, they're saying we're out of paint right now. We need more paint. They're out of, you know, enough rivets to build this stuff or whatever. So it's, it's, you know, obviously with resilience, we're doing advanced biomanufacturing, but I guess there's robotics and other things through manufacturing of all sorts. Absolutely. You know, as, as a highly intelligent person once said, if we don't have, if we don't make stuff, then we won't have stuff. So we need to make more stuff. And I think actually when it comes to machining metal parts or printing metal parts, there's all kinds of new technologies that can take a lot of labor out of the equation and allow us to make things without the, uh, uh, with, you know, without as much labor input. There's some really cool stuff going the on there for like automatic 3D you know, design yeah. of metal, metal things and pieces. And I guess instead of having to order tons of parts, you could just build the parts when you need them. It would be great. Exactly. And I think the, the interesting thing that comes with all this automation is, you know, of course, uh, energy will start to dominate the cost equation when it comes to manufacturing. And so I think, you know, along with this sort of renaissance in American manufacturing, we also need to be thinking about how do we bring down the cost of a kilowatt hour? How can we build more nuclear capacity? Um, how can we build, you know, cheaper energy sources to allow us to be cost competitive because when automation comes actually uh, it's going to be the cost of energy the cost of a kilowatt hour that's really dominating the cost structure definitely we're sitting here in texas uh, we definitely need more energy from places like this and otherwise i agree on nuclear let's go back to the beginning you dropped out of medical school to work a pound here and you started investing what advice would you have to college students interested in, in investing and in healthcare in general i started my path in medical school because i didn't 
you know, necessarily think through the best way to actually solve a problem in the world. And I would encourage anyone who's a student thinking about solving a problem in healthcare or any other part of the economy, you know, if I'm working on something, am I, am I doing it in a way that is actually addressing the problem? Am I actually attacking climate? Am I actually attacking, you know, healthcare? Am I actually attacking drug development? Or am I climbing a hierarchy? I think that there's this tendency to believe, oh, I need to, you know, follow this route because someone senior in an area told me I need to get this degree before I can begin solving a problem. But if you have good ideas and, and you're passionate about something, we'll start working on the problem. Yeah, totally agree. I think, I think substance needs to dominate hierarchy in our society. I think it, especially if you're coming from Yale and Harvard and this whole you know, establishment, you know, you think, oh, I want to climb to the top of the New York Times or the Washington Post. And actually, Barry Weiss is having a much bigger impact right now You're on her own Substack, right? And, and I think there's a lot of things in the world like this where I could have tried to go be a general in the Defense Department and taken 20 or 30 years to get there. But actually, starting Palantir had a much, much bigger impact on the fence than kind of going into the bottom and, and playing the status game and climbing up. And so I, I think I think that's clearly true in healthcare as well. Rather than taking nine years to practice, you can already build companies and change things in a different way. I think that's right. I think that um, there are some areas where you truly do need to train. You, you know, you, you're not going to you're not going to build a fusion reactor without a background in physics. You're not going to practice medicine without medical training. But I think that you always ought to be asking the question, am I learning and am I, am I progressing or am I wasting time playing some kind of a status game. It's being critical and that fundamentally skeptical attitude, um, or, or re- not skeptical, but rather valuing your time. I, I'd say that's what I think is important is valuing your time. Are you seeing things shift at all? Are more and more smart people playing more and more status games or are there more of them coming out and actually working to solve problems? Where, where, where are we going with this? Are you optimistic? It's un- <laughs> Yes. Uh, um, is that the right answer? <laughs> um, look, I think that we're seeing, um, we're seeing divergence, right? I think that on the one hand, the, um, that the, there's, there's people who continue to, you know, march down these well-trodden paths. And then there's also people who jump out and take the TL fellowship. I mean, it seems like the majority of people who choose to be doctors are naturally somewhat risk averse because they're taking eight or nine years just doing what they're told, memorizing all sorts of things, like going down this very prescribed, very careful path. And by the time they actually get to be doctors, it feels like it's beaten out of them not to be entrepreneurial. Like, how do we fix this in the medical system to have all these basically the opposite of entrepreneurs running things? Like, how do we go in there and make it work better? I think the University of Austin is going to start a medical school is probably the only solution I can think of. So we need, we need, we, we need new medical schools as well. And, and, but it sounds like there's a lot of companies in value-based care that, that, that you're working on, that our people we know are working on. Uh, you know, and so some of those are making a difference, aren't I, they? I think that's true. And I think that on the margin, we're getting the opportunity to work with a lot of doctors, really smart physicians who have gone through medical training, uh, st- started clinical practice, but who have also, you know, kept a foot in, in, uh, the, the world, the broader world, uh, who have kept a foot in industry, who've, who've, continue to pay pay attention to these sort of system level problems. So, so, so some of them are still wanting to be skeptical. I mean, to me, this is why I think healthcare is like the most woke of all the industries is because to be woke, which is like to be part of this like modern religion of what you're supposed to believe, you have to not question things. You have to go along with things. And, and the people who are the most woke are the ones who are the least likely to think for themselves in my experience, which seems to be how healthcare works. Is that, is, is that, is that how you've experienced it as well? I think to survive in medical training, you can't ask too many questions, right? And medical school, if you start asking, why am I memorizing this list of antibiotics and the bugs they match up to, they'll say, you know, just memorize the list. This isn't the time to be asking questions. You need to pass the exam. Um, 
and, and this, this is something that just sort of like perpetuates in, in through residency. And so you're kind of trained not to ask too many critical questions, but some iconoclasts somehow make it through that system and thank goodness for them. Um, folks like Toyin, uh, Ajayi, who's the, uh, now the CEO of City Block Health, a physician mm-hmm. by training, but someone who's always been working on systems level problems. So these are people that think for themselves, think about systems. And we just got to find these iconoclasts, partner with them and fix the incentives, fix how things work. You got it. You got it. There, there's still, there's still hope yet. 